Spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead. Hi, hi, hi there, my little droogies. Welcome to another episode of Max Mike Movies, the podcast that stays crunchy even in milk. No, it doesn't. This week, we begin a new series, Then and Now. Where or we, what? This again? Or the indeed, where we each take turns choosing a film and one or more of its remakes to discuss. This week, it's my choice. Mine, I tell you, mine. <clears throat> we agreed he'd say mine. And I, I've chosen the 1968 movie The Thomas Crown Affair, starring Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway, and its 1999 remake starring Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo. Ooh. And who am I? Why, that would be telling. So I will. I'm one of your hosts, international lunch meat thief, Max Levine. Hey, where's my lunch meat? <laughs> and I am international lunch meat victim, Mike Luce. <laughs> and uh, like I say, we're talking about the two versions of the Thomas Crown Affair. Very different movies with pretty much identical plots. Pretty, yes, but important differences. Yeah, very significant differences. The show. The first one, 1968 one, as I say, starred Steve McQueen, mm. or Mr. Cool, as they called him. They yeah. really did. That was one of his nicknames. Uh, and Faye <sighs> Dunaway. <laughs> oh, my God, she was gorgeous in that movie. And the director of uh, this version is Norman Jewison, who we, we know from some rather disparate films in that he, did, he directed And Justice for All, Moonstruck, In the Heat of the Night, Jesus Christ Superstar. Really? Really. I distinctly and... heard you say Jewison. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's in front of the Friends of Moses. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was also the pro a producer on the movie, the original movie, Rollerball. <laughs> now, ooh, there's a classic. <laughs> yeah, I bring that up because the director of the 1999 Thomas Crown Affair, John McTiernan, also directed the remake of Rollerball. Ah yes, we'll, <laughs> so we'll, we'll get we'll get to him uh, later. I sense a lost bet somewhere. <laughs> I, I begin to wonder. <laughs> We're going to keep the trivia sort of light because we've got two movies to go through. But a couple of things: uh, Jewison only wanted Faye Dunaway for the female lead. He like basically said she's she's it. Yeah. But uh, Steve McQueen was not his first choice because Steve McQueen's on-screen persona was very different than what he wanted for Thomas Crown. Steve McQueen was a like, oh, great, great escape, Magnificent Seven, more of sort of a tough guy, action-y sort. No, who he wanted was Richard Burton. <laughs> well, well, which Richard Burton? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm hoping the good one. But I'm not sure. I'd like would... to steal some money, money, money please. <laughs> I'm poor. I'm Welsh. My name's not Richard Burton yet. Gamera, Gamera, Gamera. <laughs> uh, this of the, uh, the this earlier Thomas Crown Affair actually won an Oscar for Best Original Song. The song Windmills of Your Mind. Yeah, interestingly, which, this is not my favorite version of that song. Yeah, the one in this version, in the 68 version, is a little, well, it's very dated. It's very 60s. It's very intense. It is sung by, do you know who sang it? I saw his name and I don't remember who it was. Uh, it's Noel Harrison. Ah, who, it's, not, wait, it's not Rex Harrison's son. Yes, is it? it is. It is young. <laughs> it is Mr. Harrison's little boy. 
It's like when they got uh, Sean Connery's brother to do a, a, a spy film. Oh, that's right. Double 007. Yeah. I think it was a Neil Connery. I've, who I think it was. cares? Touch Connery, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> touch Connery, yes. Do not touch, touch Connery. <laughs> Yeah. Man, we're digging deep this week. Okay, so they, yeah, they yeah, uh, it is it is Rex Harrison. Now that's interesting because of course the it is well known that Rex Harrison himself cannot sing. No, I never tried to. He very sensibly always spoke his songs in Doctor Doolittle and My Fair Lady. Well, wasn't he William Shatner singing coach? He was. <laughs> no, he doesn't pause. Oh well, yeah, but he Shatner doesn't sing. Thank oh. the Lords. Oh Lord, yes. All right, go ahead. I, by the way, we we hope you all. Uh, followed up on your homework assignment, which was to find the video of William Shatner singing Rocket Man and watched it, because there will be a quiz. <laughs> like, why did you listen to us? Yeah, exactly. What were you thinking? You all fail. Mm-hmm. Come back next week. So that's pretty much it for trivia for the first one. I thought we'd go through the first one and then sure. compare you compare the second one. Okay. Mm. So what's the plot of the first one? Well, the first one is there is a super rich guy named Thomas Crown who basically pulls off a bank robbery because it's fun, and a the insurance company that covers the bank sends in a, fem, a, a an insurance investigator to try to find the who stole the money. The insurance investigator is Faye Dunaway. During this, she figures out almost immediately that he's the mastermind behind it, which is quite a trick considering none of the people who actually pull the heist know who he is. Yes. But she figures it out, tells him... That she knows it's him pretty much right away. And the rest of the movie is them playing this sort of cat and mouse game where she's trying to catch him, he's trying to avoid her, and they both begin, as much as anyone like them can, falling in love. Yes. Did I leave anything out? No, no. Uh, Yeah. That's pretty much it. The Lowdown. First of all, I do have to say there is one way in that uh, the 1968 film is vastly superior to the 1999 film. It takes place in Boston! <laughs> yeah. Woo! And I, I I didn't look at the end. Uh, I don't even know if it said, but I'm pretty damn sure that all the cemetery scenes are Mon Auburn Cemetery. No, 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 no. The They're one not? where there... No, oh, that oh that one. I'm sorry. The one at the beginning and the end. Yeah, yes. I think that is... The, there is one where they're at the Old North Church in Boston. Yeah. No, 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 no. But I mean where they're doing the drop-offs and yeah. stuff. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that is, in fact, Mount Auburn. Yeah, which is a... a actually, it's a very beautiful cemetery. Oh, it's gorgeous. They didn't even show any of the cooler parts of it. There are, oh. I think, three or four ponds there. People go yep. for picnics in the Mount Auburn Cemetery. There's, I, some, am- I, there's some amazing um, statuary and stuff. There's a sphinx there. People um, go and check out the trees. There's a lot of rare and unusual trees. I used and, to go bird watching there with my father. Well, I think it's a... A listed bird sanctuary, but also yep. they have like they have name plates for the trees and plants and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very European, yeah. um, and it really is a nice place to go. Uh, yeah, it really is. It's a great place to go walking. I've done it many times, and there's all sorts of co- interesting people who are um, not living there. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, Longfellow's uh, there. Mary Baker Eddy. Yeah, I tried right. calling her number, but I couldn't find it. She's unlisted. <laughs> Sorry, you know, she's, supposed, for, she's supposed to have a phone in her... In her that, is, that is the myth that uh, supposedly Mary Baker Eddy, who was the founder of the Church of Scientology... Not Scientology. Sorry, Christian Science. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, to be fair, the Christian scientists are way less nuts than the Scientologists. No Xenu. Come, <laughs> come, come and get me, Xenu. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, supposedly she was... She has a very impressive mausoleum 
Yeah. Allegedly, she has a phone. She had a phone put in, so I guess if she woke up, she could call out. I don't know, yeah, or have yeah. pizza delivered. I, I don't know either. Uh, no, no, yeah. So the, seeing Boston's fun. The, the, the couple things I noticed are there's certain parts that really haven't changed, like all the stuff in the little back streets of the Back Bay and Beacon Hill, mm-hmm. pretty much look exactly the same as they do now. Yeah, the this, Mass this Turnpike, though. <laughs> yeah, the Mass Turnpike, though. It's like where's all the cars? Yeah, there's significantly less people, and it's like, oh, I miss that. Yeah, <laughs> a lot less people, and of course, everyone can find a parking space, so that's clearly Hollywood. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's just us cause we're both from the yep. area. So it's nice, mm-hmm. but it's also back when you could actually shoot films in Boston because yeah. you basically can't do that anymore. I think the last time they shot anything really big was blown away back oh, in I the nineties. I thought it was a goodwill hunting. Uh, well, I don't remember which one came first, one of the oh. two, but like after that, Boston was like, no, you may not film here. So it's always like Canada yeah. um, or something like that. So whatever. <laughs> Um, no, the reason I was making a noise a little earlier, because it's like they're, you know, they're more or less falling in love. Uh, that is one thing I will say that I, I thought was lesser in this film. I didn't believe it. Um, I didn't believe for an instant that she was in any way falling for him, huh. um, which was proven towards the end of the film. I don't want to give too much away. But he also is so cold. Um, I mean, Mr. Cool, yeah, but he's cold. Yeah, and Thomas Crown, the character Thomas Crown is basically a sociopath. Yeah, and I get more the impression that he's really glad to finally meet a worthy adversary. Yeah. And, oh, isn't it nice she also happens to be a woman and she at least is pretending to be attracted to me. Um, and this is where the two films are going to differ, and we'll have to talk about that once we, we do the plot of uh, mm-hmm. number two. Um, there was a number of other things though, but one of the styles of the time, so, uh, film had, you know, obviously color film showed up sometime in the thirties and eventually the big film known for introducing color, which it didn't, uh, was either, uh, Gone with the Wind or Wizard of Oz, but films had been getting slowly less colorful till you get to the late sixties, early seventies. And this film was so grainy. I was amazed at how grainy it was, but that was just huh. the style. Um, also, I thought the style of the film, it opens up, and all I could think of was a Quinn Martin production. <laughs> <laughs> there are There's some very gimmicky uh, cinematography, which actually ends up working pretty well, where they do multiple frames, multiple uh, shots at the same time. So you're yep. seeing like five different versions of what's happening. Yeah, I really like that, especially mm-hmm. in the beginning, because one of the big things about the first version of this film is that crown manages to hire we only see him hire one person but we get the idea that he's hired all these people similarly and that is separately and he's merely said to them there will be another guy or there will be other guys you'll know them when you see them but when he contacts them it's all separately and they're all done in these little different squares so you can tell that not only are these guys not connected but it reinforces the idea that even they don't know each other Mm -hmm. and they don't know him so even when one of them is caught and breaks yep he can't identify crown he's never seen him no they in fact uh it's a really cool scene where they just think hey we'll put them in the same room and see what happens and the answer is nothing yeah because the guy doesn't know what crown looks like and crown is such a cool customer he doesn't even blink when he nope. sees this uh, the other guy nope i, I got it yeah we'll, we'll come to that i want to talk a little bit about that at some point but uh 
Uh, did you recognize one of the uh, burglar, one of the uh, bank robbers in the origin in the uh, first heist? Yafet Koto. Yes, Yafet yeah. Koto. Yeah, Mr. Most, Big himself. <laughs> Mr. Big, aka Mr. Kananga from uh, Live and Let Die, and he was from, in Alien. He's been a ton of stuff. He was in Running Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not his no. best role, but there you no, go. No, no, not not perhaps the high point of his career. There was a I, couple of other uh, cameos. I wonder if you caught. Yeah. One of them I could easily see why you'd miss because it was he, he he I think he had one line and he's mostly in the background. That is the the butler. Oh, who's the butler? He's played by the same actor who played Ugly John on the first season or two of uh, Mash. Okay, I'm not surprised I missed that. <laughs> and the other is a very brief appearance by a strangely blonded Martin Glover. Oh, really? Where was he? He oh man I'm trying to think of where he was in the middle and he does have a line the only film I know him from is Diamonds Are Forever and he is Crispin's Glover uh Crispin Glover's somewhat odd father I oh can't is that tell... Mr Wint or Mr Kid yeah and I can't tell which one's odder him or his dad they they Cause... look very similar uh yeah and as I said he's blonde in this and I don't know mm. why but there he is yeah. but it's like that's kind of cool um the the whole thing is part of the, what is what the motivation is for Thomas Crown. Because as they, they make it very clear, the guy's rich. He's right. worth a ton of money and <laughs> he's worth four million dollars. <laughs> hey, in sixty eight that was and they what they steal is about two point six million, which ends up getting split like six ways. And well, 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 well as, wait. Where do you get the idea that it's gets it's split six ways? Well, I don't know that for sure. But, oh no, uh, no, no, no. He said to the one guy Irving. The driver Irwin, got fifty grand. I'm willing to bet that that's all anybody got. I don't think okay. he he shared much of anything with him. He said with possibly with more to come. The idea being if they don't get caught, maybe they'll do more heists. But I'm willing to bet that 50k was all they saw, and that's all maybe. they were ever going to see. Except it's very clear it's not about the money for him. I mean, even the FBI agent who's looking for him says, "Is that what this all comes down to? Kicks?" And yeah, that's pretty much it. He does. I mean, after the heist. That there was a scene. I, that was a scene I really liked better in the first movie. After the heist, Steve McQueen is in his study and he just starts laughing yeah. and jumping around like a little kid. Yeah. Just and it's clear this is how he. This is how the only time he feels joy. This is when he has fun. And I, he, I, he I, says one of his quotes later is, "It's about the system. Me and the system. He likes beating the system." Yeah, and we'll have to talk about the the reactions because I actually there's a lot of things I prefer about the second film. But mm-hmm. that being said, I'd seen I'd tried to watch this film once and I kind of fell asleep. Um, I think I just wasn't in the mood for it. The film was actually a pleasant surprise. Um, there was a lot of really good things about it. I thought that the film was a bigger deal when it came out than it was. It did certainly make plenty of money. Yeah, the budget um, was uh, four point three mil. It made fourteen. Well, of course, it stole 2.6 of that. Yes. (laughs) Um, I I think, you know, of course, it was Steve McQueen, and pretty much anything Steve McQueen did was kind of big. And I want to say that this is pretty much the height of his career. Um, Because he had done, right around the same time, he had done um, Great Escape, and this bullet comes a little later, but not Mm -hmm. much. So I'm pretty, I'm guessing, and of course, Faye Dunaway. Um, Yeah, but you got to understand, Faye Dunaway was nobody. In fact, Steve McQueen in the movie uh, on the set, he used to refer to her jokingly as uh, "Done Fade Away," uh, because yeah, he well, thought she was going to disappear. Because the, the Norman Jewison saw her in some shots of the the movie that basically was her breakout film, which was Bonnie and Clyde, which hadn't been released yet. Oh. Nobody knew who Faye Dunaway was. Well, they certainly would after this. Yeah, she became a huge deal after that. 
that is one of the things I like about both films, and that is that the female protagonist is portrayed, yes, she's very good looking, but she's also the smartest person in the film next to yeah. Thomas Crown. And yeah. in some cases, you might say she's actually smarter. You might she, be. she is the smartest one in the room. You can always tell that. When she waltzes in to police headquarters, I mean, sure, they do this this whole thing where it's like, ooga, waga, 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 <laughs> when she first shows uh-huh. up in the movie. But then she's sitting there, sitting there going, we have nothing. You know, mm-hmm. we have these descriptions of guys in hats. Hats! Remember when men used to wear hats? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> um, but we have these men in, these description of men in hats and sunglasses, and that's mm-hmm. it. And we've got nothing. Like, oh, there was a, a Ford station wagon, one of millions, seen <laughs> near the bank at the time, and that's it. We have nothing. And she's sitting there going, hmm. And she starts coming up with things that obviously the cops had never uh, thought about, never occurred to them. And luckily one of them is enough for them to go oh wow okay and then she says well now if it's this sort of person let's look at this and now Mm -hmm. she's got two lists to cross-reference and that's where she comes up with crown and it's funny because that scene you're talking about she's looking at these pictures of these guys nope nope Ugh, i don't like him he's ugly you know (laughs) but she's also just sitting there i mean you can tell she's also listening going now not the type not the type and she gets to the you know, obviously the young playboy guy, and it's like, oh, it's Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Now, and they make a whole thing out of that. It's like, oh, because you think he's cute? And he goes, oh, yeah. But she's so obviously using the fact that she's a good-looking woman, and she is, you know, she has them dancing to her tune in like two minutes. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Norma Jewinson actually consulted with the FBI on the uh, – the law enforcement techniques and the way they would track them. And he asked if he could film in the Boston offices of the FBI. And they looked at the script and said, no, you make us look incompetent. <laughs> well, they yeah, didn't like I'm, that. They're yeah. not incompetent, but they're clearly no. out of their league. Yeah. Yeah. And she, well, they are and they aren't to be fair. He did a really good job planning the heist. Mm-hmm. And he really doesn't leave them a dang thing. And, of course, one of the things, this is in my notes to, to bring up, is just the whole idea of technology. Oh, yeah. Because technology so different. changed so much. I mean, one of the things also that just tickled me is there's this scene a couple of times of people going to phone booths. Haha, <laughs> phone booths. And there's yeah. these rows of them. Like, it's like now if you're lucky, you see one in an airport. And there used to be these rows and people were waiting in line for them. But there are also these scenes where they're showing them calling for the correct time. I remember that. I used to use that all the time. You would call a number. It would tell you... At the tone, the time will be 1.40 p.m. Exactly. Beep. Yeah. That's how you set your watch. There's so many things. Like, even they show, they make a point of the fact that before the robbery, you know, here's the bank. And then after the robbery, here's more guards. And now we have security cameras. But that Mm. was not a common thing at all. Um, And so just the, the level of technology... And I, I would hate to make a heist film these days. Made it a lot easier to make a heist film back in the '60s because there's all this stuff you don't have to worry about. You know, mm-hmm. cell phones alone really screw up plot devices for these oh, heist yeah. films because oh, yeah. it makes it so much easier. Um, but and also, I mean, people would be taking their pictures. There would be filmed everywhere. Right. You know. Yeah, and, but there's no die packs. There's no pressure sensors. There's no. nothing. No, and it's obvious that he. 
just spent a lot of time plotting. And of course, one of the things that makes utter sense, which nobody realizes until she meets him, is that his office overlooks the bank. So yeah. he sits there and that's one of the ways he's able to time everything. It's like, well, I made another 100000 in the market. I'm bored. Oh, I'll just sit there and look at the bank again. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, her part in both films I really like. There's a little bit more of stereotypicality. Is that a word? Of her uh, in the now. first film, in the first film, but it's not nearly as much as the stuff of the time. Mm. So that that I like. I mean, it's it's nice seeing a a smart woman character who is on par with the male lead, the male white lead. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, I, I again, I think it, I really like the way the movie works. I also like the fact, and this comes up. This is more of a comparison to the second. There isn't that that much dialogue. No. They don't talk very much. It's no. all done through body language, expression, <laughs> very terse, very short phrases. And that and, very uncomfortable scene where she is stroking the, the chess piece. Oh, the erotic, like... the erotic chess game, which actually is really well done, where she is blatantly saying, yeah, I'm, I'm using my sexuality to distract you, and I know it, and you know it, and you still can't look away. No, he can't. But this is she's just sitting there, and she's stroking the queen, and it's just like it was. Uh, oh, it was a bishop. The bishop was it a bishop? Much, okay, yeah, it's much more. Oh, phallic. that's right. Yeah, and it's just like uh, I feel funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. She's just sort of like brushing at her chest, and yeah, yeah, and exposing things. And it's it's funny because all of what you just said, and eventually he doesn't quite get up as the petulant child and say, oh, I don't want to play anymore. But he does get up and say, let's play something else, which of yeah. course is, you know, sex. <laughs> yes. Um, in other words, something I can quote-unquote win. You don't see much in the... I have to say, I think the uh, the way they handle the sex is a lot more dignified in the in the first movie. You don't see a great... There's no nudity. Well... There, no, you know, nothing serious. Uh, there's, I'm not uh, even sure... There's nothing... I think it was still GP back then. Probably. Like, it was very uh, restrained. Whereas, you know, in the, the second one, they're running around naked all over the place. Yep. And that was, in fact, uh, Rene Russo's first nude scene. Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot to say. for. Well, we should we should probably. Yeah, I, probably have, I have some other points, but they're going to involve comparison. So, uh, okay. so we, we have the second version. We have this 1999 version. Oh, so, sorry. Sorry. I want to oh. just say one, one or two things, other things about the uh, first one. Uh, first of all, the methodology that she uses is kind of despicable. Oh, yeah. Never yeah, mind that, that she breaks. I mean, okay, she's working for an insurance company, so that explains it. Uh, no. No, it does not. Yeah, yeah she <laughs> breaks into his house. Yep. Uh, and to get leverage on one of the... Uh, one of the accomplices, they kidnap his son. Yeah. And yeah. threaten to hold him for ransom. It turns out to be a bluff, but oh my God. That's and they then, have committed a federal offense. I know. And then it was just like, um, just kidding, haha. But the other thing too, and I think this is you know, I guess we're supposed to think that Irwin is just not too bright, but they say, you know, come with us. And it's like, you're insurance people, I don't have to come with anybody. Yeah, you have no authority here. <laughs> Never Nothing. mind the, un the underplayed part where it's like, oh, how did they find Irwin? His wife called and, and yeah, gave him wife, up. His wife narked on him for the reward. And I wish they had done a little bit more because my feeling was as soon as Irwin was taken in, the wife took the 25K and the kid and left because she obviously is tired of him that, and he's tired of her. That is actually one of the nice things about this movie. There's a lot of stuff that you have that is implied, but you don't see. 
Yeah. We never, never actually hear her give him up. We see she looks at the newspaper ad, sees the reward, and picks up the phone. We don't hear her call. We don't know what what is set up. It's just then it happens. No, and then they mention, oh, yeah, this the salesman's wife called, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a couple of other things that I thought were that made the film a little bit. It's just a sign of the times, but I, I liked in the newer film better. One of them was that uh, they basically smack around a bank guard in the first heist. Mm-hmm. And then there's another heist with actually shoot people. Um, so adding that and the kidnapping adds a darker tone than I was expecting. Yeah. That is actually something John McTiernan. That's one of the reasons he changed the sort of crime. Because uh-huh. the first one, yeah, in the first heist, they shoot this guy in the leg. Right. And they do. Well, they no, later people. on, the second one, there's like machine gun fire. Yeah. that That's the, the, the second heist, which he does basically on a dare. Because she's, you know, he says, you know, I could do it again. Right. And she says, no, that'd be insane. And, and basically he says, hold my beer and watch this. Yeah. And the interesting thing I thought about that second heist we, it's only on screen for like two minutes. It's very short. Well, have we and seen it? it? Mm-hmm. It's slightly different. They use a little bit different methodology. <laughs> but it's basically the same thing. Yeah, it's and uh, John McTiernan d- wanted to make it a an unarmed, no-one-gets-hurt crime because they, he felt, probably rightly so, it would be harder for the audience to sympathize with Crown if he actually had people shot. Right. Well, again, I think this might have something to do with the sign of the times. You know, mm. the 60s, there was a lot of, like, that sort of thing was just rampant. And I'm not saying that violence is, like, less than it was in the 60s. Oh, boy. But um, it's actually more blatant but less casual, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm No, not really. What, what do well, you mean? It's hard to explain, but it's sort of like, like, we don't see any blood, right? The guy yeah. gets shot in the leg, but like they only show them trying to clean up the the residue from the the tear gas. Right. They don't talk at all. It's like, oh, it's gonna be hell getting that that tear gas stains out of the marble. They don't talk about like <laughs> the blood from this guy's leg. It's not even shown. Mm. So now we see you know guts and stuff flying all over the place. Okay. But the yeah. use of violence isn't like, oh, that's violence. It's now it's in our face. And it's like, look, violence. Whereas back then we sort of did it and shrugged it off. Because okay, you I don't, can see. Yeah, I can see what you, you mean. It was saying? much less visceral and much less gory in the old days. Yeah. Yeah. It was also in the days when someone would get shot in the arm and go ah. Yeah. And then just sort <laughs> or, of you know tie my necktie around the wound, and now I can still climb this the uh, cliff. Or they'd do the whole you know Shatner rub my thumb along the base yeah. of my <laughs> lip because that's the only part that's bleeding and continue fighting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. And again, well, this is part of the comparison. I think Thomas Crown in the first movie is not supposed to be terribly sympathetic because what is this guy? He's this rich, spoiled guy who steals other people's money because he's bored. Right. But then here's the thing you can say, and this is a point made in the other, the second film too, is that the only people it really affects, oh, except the guy who got shot, uh, is a bunch of rich people. What are you right? talking about? He's stealing from a maid. This is different. Uh, the no, painting one, you can argue about. He's stealing money from a bank, and then the insurance company has to pay it off, and then they raise everybody else's rates. Well, whose rates, though? Because these are people that cover banks. They probably aren't health insurance people. So the uh, people no, whose could, rates go up these, are the banks. But these people are also, if they're a major insurance company, which these guys probably are, they also probably do household insurance, auto insurance. Believe me, they find a way to pass it on to the people who can least afford it. That's the way insurance companies work. 
I, it's it, that's that's a very nebulous thing, mm. and quite honestly, that's what he's after. He's not. It's all about like he doesn't even know that the little people exist. That's the one thing I found a little bit hard to believe in this case. I have no idea how he found these guys. Mm. You know, it's like I don't get any sense that he has any connections in the underworld because we never see him do anything except meet them in a in a hotel. No, a but hotel you get, room. the big thing you get with him from him is he knows how to get things done. And whatever if he whatever he wants to happen, he'll make it happen. I guess, but he's got direct involvement. And I don't I I, I don't know how he obviously had to meet these guys or set these guys up somehow. Mm. And he had to knew that these were people he could trust, although I think Irwin was sort of like, Oh crap, I need a fifth, uh, it's tomorrow because <laughs> he's obviously the weak link. But mm. I don't I, I found it hard to believe that Thomas Crown in the first film like knew these guys to bring them in and we don't see any suggestion of an of a uh, any kind of other connection so it wasn't something that that threw me out of the film i was just like how does he know these guys now that didn't bother me at all i just figured if he decided he needed people to do the job he would find someone who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy and it would just it would just work that's why I wonder why he was directly involved. That's the that's the contradiction I have. Is if he knew a guy, who knew a guy, who knew a guy, he'd have somebody else set it up. They um, also but, they do they go out of their way to show you what kind of a life he lives. They show you his beach house and all his cars. Hell, you know he at one point he's playing friggin' polo. Yeah. By the way, Steve McQueen did all his own stunts, including that is him playing polo. Huh. And that is him flying flying the glider, and that is him driving that ridiculous beach dune, dune buggy thing. Well, he, he was a race car driver, too. Yeah, so he that, was also that, a stunt driver. He could do all that. That part, that stuff doesn't surprise me. All mm-hmm. I could think of is at one point is like, oh, it's it's a biopic of Steve McQueen. <laughs> <laughs> no, when he's out playing, I mean, polo, for God's sake, that is the cliche rich person sport. Because, you know, you need a horse. <laughs> I wonder if it was the Myopia Hunt Club. Well, they're the, da- who, what they're now? Da- the Myopia Hunt Club. They're actually down on the Cape. Oh. Uh, and I mm. think they do polo, or at least did. I could be wrong. It was something we used to pass every once in a while. I was like, what What does that mean? And we were told, it's like, oh, nearsightedness? Why is there a hunt club for nearsighted people? I don't understand. <laughs> well, you got to keep them away, especially if they're using guns. You don't want uh, people squinting. Uh, oh, is that a deer? Blam! Ah! <laughs> oh, sorry, Bob. Um, we, we, can make, we can make more points, but I, I think we really need to make, bring in the second film. Okay, so we get to 1999. Yep. And we have, the again, starring Pierce Brosnan, best known for Remington Steele and eventually James Bond. Yep. Uh, we also got Rene Russo. Oh. Yeah and, yeah. and Dennis Leary, Boston boy Dennis Leary, who they, and they set the damn thing in New York. That's okay. Worst movie ever. <laughs> I told you, you yeah. after a certain point, you couldn't film in Boston yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. Also, but, to uh, be fair, they wanted something big like The Met. And yeah, while the MFA, my MFA probably was like, uh-uh, we don't even want you to pretend that you were here. Yeah, we know what happened to the guys down the street, the Isabella Stewart Gardner. No. Oh, no, 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 no. The MFA has been robbed. Oh, okay. Yes, more than once. And in fact, the guy who did it, it was somebody who claimed that he knew who stole from the Isabella Stewart Gardening Museum. Oh. So I'm sure the MFA was like, we're kind of touchy about that. <laughs> yeah, don't I give anybody any ideas. I Let them steal that. from the Met. They I don't never, know that by that's the way, true. But... In the movie, they never say that it's the Met. You do see it on a package delivery, but they never say that it's the Met. Even you know, they, The Met also refused permission to use the interior. Right. So it's actually filmed mostly in the New York Public Library a few blocks away for most of the interior scenes and a sound soundstage for the rest. Oh. The exterior is used with the permission from the city. 
Right. But well, the, you also see on the guard's sleeves, you see the little logo of Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yeah, but you have to know that. I didn't. Well, it and, says uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art on, yeah. their, on their sleeves. But so. uh, the, just a little background on John McTiernan. He's mostly an action movie director. Like I say, he did the Roller Bowl oh. remake. He also did Predator, Die, oh. Die Hard, oh, and The Last Action Hero. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, he also decided to change the heist from a bank robbery uh, to an art, because he felt, like I said, the audiences would be less forgiving of Thomas Crown if he had, you know, armed men running around shooting people. Right. And there is the point, which Dennis Leary makes at the end, you know, do I, when, you know, uh, uh, Rene Russo asks him, did you really care about this crime? And he goes, no. It's just a few smears of paint that nobody but a bunch of silly rich people care about. Right. So, and he'd, he'd been dealing with, the week before he'd been dealing yeah, with uh, like, a guy who had been beating on his children and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, right now, just because I can, I want to give a huge round of applause to Dennis Leary. Mm. I really like him in this film. He does a really good job. He's very restrained. He's very un-Dennis Leary-ish. But I like the character. Yeah, like you, the... I, there's just something about him. You can tell this is a working class cop, although why the FBI is not brought in, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. Um, uh, and he's obviously about his department. He cares about the people he works for. He's been dealt a, a bad hand relationship-wise. Um, you get the impression that it was definitely a case of she left him as opposed to he was like a bad guy or anything. Um, just because of the way he shows respect to other people, maybe not verbally, but that's Dennis Leary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I just, it's like, I could watch another movie with him as that character. I yeah. really liked him in this. And I, do, I didn't know what to expect. Like Dennis Leary, the guy who's screaming about cigarettes, that guy <laughs> and meat. <laughs> so yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, also, this was also a pretty successful movie. The budget was $45 million. Worldwide gross was 124 So it did okay. Not yep. spectacular, but okay. Uh, it's about the same, actually. The ratio is about three to one. So yeah. that's, not, that's about the same. Yeah, that is what is considered success. To make For a movie to be a financial success, at least in the last 20 to 30 years, it has to make three times its budget because the budget for the film is nothing compared to the marketing budget. Well, you know how they made up all the money on this film. It was all the Thomas Crown Happy Meal toys. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, no, the, the sales of bowler hats spiked. <laughs> yeah, if they would have been fedoras, I would have said that started the hipster craze, but no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, was it? Oh, yes. There's a nice touch in that the very first scene we have Thomas Crown, Pierce Brosnan, at seeing his psychiatrist, who is played by Faye Dunaway. Yes, very well. And she looks great. I mean, I that's not... She, ate, she aged She's a very talented actress. She's very intelligent, but she also looks great. Mm-hmm. They could not get Steve McQueen to, <laughs> to be in it for the, sl- the small reason that he had died in 1980. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was only 50 years old. Yeah, I he, forget what he... Didn't he die? Was it cancer? cancer? Yeah, it was. Yeah. After cancer surgery that was supposedly successful. Oh. Apparently not. Uh... Some of the things in this movie, one of the things I will say about the first movie, it is a lot subtler. Yes. The opening in the movie with the first heist involves a literal Trojan horse. I think that's hilarious. Yeah, but why did they had to rub our face in it? We can see, oh, look, it's it says the statue, basically a statue gets delivered. It says uh, Greco slash Asian horse statue, and there are thieves hiding inside it. And then... 
The cops are talking about it and said, wait, just tell me the statue wasn't a horse. It was. You mean a literal Trojan horse? Yep. We got it. You didn't have to tell us. You know, I want to say that that probably was not something that occurred to a lot of people. That's one of the, the oldest literary cliches of Western civilization. But it everybody, said, e- it, even people it, who don't know what the Iliad is, know what a Trojan horse is. I think, though, that saying Grecian Asian was enough that they were worried that a lot of people wouldn't get it. And I, I think they were probably right. I, I don't agree with that. I think people got would have got that immediately when it said mm. Greek horse. Come on. Mm, I, I'm, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to okay, say that well, there's that's a lot of people out there that just wouldn't. And I think it wasn't so much rubbing it in our faces. It was rubbing it in the police's faces. Mm. And in that case, it works very well. Mm. Oh, I also like there's a little sort of gimmick in the credits where people, when they're showing people's names and they yeah. keep swapping Shh. the letters. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> it's giving things away. Well, yes. we know, they know they're going to be spoilers. Yeah. that And and, and it is a 20 year old film. Yeah. Um, that was great because you don't think twice about that when you're no, watching the film. You just you're think, like, oh, oh, that's cute. I don't know why they're doing it, but that's cute. Yeah. yeah. And it, and I will tell you, part of the heist involves swapping things. Yes. Swapping things. Mm. Swapping. Swapping. And again, the plot of this one is very similar. There is a super rich dude played by, you know, Thomas Crown, played by Pierce Brosnan, uh, who, and uh, his motivation is a little less clear because it's it's obvious Steve McQueen is doing it for the kicks. He's doing it for fun. I got to say, once uh, after the first heist, Pierce Brosnan's whole thing is he sort of chuckles and makes a toast, and that's it. He doesn't he doesn't seem to revel in it the way Steve McQueen did. But he's not. Steve McQueen breaks into laughter a number of times. One of which I was sitting there going, "Why is he laughing?" And I couldn't help but think that the director was like, we need you to show some emotion. Could you laugh again, please? Uh. Um, and for me, I liked his reaction better because it didn't feel so forced. Um, and he's raising his glass because he he's also sitting there, I'm guessing, thinking maybe it's not over, but so far I'm doing great. Whereas I think Steve McQueen felt, I'm done. I did it. Not a chance. Oh, I, would, I never got that feeling. I got the feeling he was going to do it again because that's the only way that he felt any pleasure. Oh, I think he was going to do it again, too. I didn't think he was necessarily planning to do the same bank necessarily. It just occurred to him because of of Faye Dunaway's character that it's like, oh, yeah, I know what would impress you. You know what would impress you if I did the same damn dumb thing twice? You also notice the heists, both of them, are way more elaborate than in the first movie. And some of that, as you say, is the technology. But some of it is this guy is, you know, this is diehard guy. Yeah, he wants to focus on. Oh, look, we got helicopters and we got high tech and we got uh, weird guys with funny accents and you know, look, there's Alan Rickman. Okay, no, there isn't. But <laughs> is there a spoon? <laughs> <laughs> would it hurt more? Yes, yes, it would. So, you know what? What struck me as a little strange is why Thomas Crown's name is the same, but the insurance investigator's names are different. Because uh, Rene Russo's character is Catherine Banning. Right. And uh, Faye Dunaway's character is Vicki Anderson. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't just... see any reason one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, everyone else's character is a different name, but those are the two main and yeah, just odd. Yeah. Uh, again, she is the insurance agent brought in to try to recover the painting. She's not interested in who, any, sending anyone to jail. She just doesn't want to, they don't want to have to pay out. 
It's also curious. You notice she gets less money than Dunaway did. Hey, Dunaway, mm-hmm. sell, you know, Vicky says if she gets the painting, if she gets the money back, she gets ten percent of the value. Russo gets five percent. All I yes, can figure of $100 is hundred million dollars. Yeah, the, the only reason I can figure is because it's so much more money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, they had to do that because, of course, you know, Dr. Evil, one yeah. million dollars. Yeah, like, we well, can't yeah. do a million dollars in 1999 because mm-hmm. who cares? And um, once again, you have a whole thing. She is a, a beautiful woman and she uses that to her advantage. And there is still a lot of, oh, hell, the what is it? The Detective Peretti, um, Leary's boss, keeps calling her little lady. Yeah. And she doesn't bat an eye at that. She's just... Again, I think she's doing the same thing Faye Dunaway is doing, which is, good, underestimate me. She's a great character. Mm. Either either side, they're played utterly differently, and they are both great characters. Um, Completely I, differently. She's so, she shows so much more emotion, and she's so much more vulnerable than uh, Faye Dunaway's character, who is icy, calm, and always collected... You can see some of the conflict when she's weighing her feelings for Crown versus her job. Right. And But with uh, Russo, it's very clear that she's... You know, you were saying you, you didn't believe that uh, Dunaway was in love with him. It's right. pretty clear from... They make it painfully obvious toward the end that she is in love with Crown. Yes. And I would say that's not only him, but the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's like she's, they just go anywhere and do anything. And she has to admit as much as I think she's also excited because she's also met somebody that's on her level and she's not used to dealing with anybody Mm -hmm. that like probably gives her any challenge at all. And that's one of the reasons she likes him. But then it's like, wow, I not only do I really like him, not only am I attracted, but um, this living high on the (laughs) hog is pretty cool. Well, both of them, both she and Dunaway use that same great line, which is you live very well. Be ashamed if that was taken away from you. Yeah. It's it's funny because in some ways they're very, very similar movies. Obviously, it's the same idea, yeah. the same plot. And in other ways like this, they're really different. Yeah. Um, I tended to like Rene Russo's character better, partially because I believe she actually falls. And this is a fault, not a fault, but it is a, a element of the script change. And so I can't really compare them directly. But she does actually fall for Thomas Crown in mm-hmm. the second film. Whereas in the first one, I think that her whole thing was that she wanted him to believe that, but she never actually did. And then we get that little Steve McQueen smile, which we get about three times throughout the film at the end, which is basically like, yeah, I know what you were doing. And he flies off to Neverland or, you know, <laughs> except, well, except he get well, he gives her the option. You can see that's what the message was. Yeah. And, but he was and, already on the plane. He, he was, yeah, he, he told her that he said, you know, left early. Uh, yeah. and, I, I know this is a bit of a spoiler, but the last message is left early. Come at, come to come with me and bring the money or keep the car. Right. And that's, you know, he's basically saying this is your choice. This wasn't proof to him. This is like what happens next. You know, if you br- that was that was the final. It was like if you brought any cops, you know, obviously you're not going to come here. You're not going to follow me. And right. uh, if you didn't take the money and come bring me, come see me. The, yeah. the second movie is way more happy ending-ish. And I don't mind that, although, of course, you sit there and go, oh, that's cool, and you realize, wait, he's a thief! <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a major thief, except he, in this case, he isn't, because he actually returned, well, he stole the other, anyway, yes. Right. He, he returns one painting, he steals another. 
he just did it because and actually i do like that better the whole let's steal from the same bank thing mm-hmm. was fine and i could see why he did it it was a very you know macho bravado thing to do but the second film the fact that he never even meant to do that and had already outsmarted people again before they knew they were being outsmarted mm-hmm. i really liked mm-hmm. i also to be fair i'm an art guy so i like thought the art was more interesting even visually and plot wise than the money the money's fine but I mean, they literally walk out of the bank with these bags and they throw it in the back of a station wagon and drive off. Yeah. And he goes home with, to be fair, what he does, which is one of the small, unbelievable parts of the film, is he rushes into the gallery, takes the Monet off the wall. He mm-hmm. rips off the the nailed on frame. Uh, no. Yeah. And then folds it in half and puts it in a briefcase. Yeah, actually, and it comes with... out and it's fine. There's yep. no yeah, seam, with one nothing. of them. With one of them, he he puts it into the briefcase in the frame, and then folds the briefcase up. And they uh, McTiernan intentionally didn't film that because he thought it would freak everyone out be- when they saw that he actually broke the frame to bend the, yeah. to fold the painting. That was the other thing. Uh, toward the end, basically the Monet gets water all over it. Would that well, have damaged it? Nah, well, probably not because not only is it oil paint, so it's going to repel okay. water anyway. But it's varnished. The varnish will repel water, so mm-hmm. it's going to be a wipe off. Um, yeah. The really the, the part to be worried about is if there was any exposed canvas and water getting to that, yeah. the wood, um, the stretchers in the back, that kind of thing, um, that could be an issue. But you know, the painting itself would have been fine. Um, the thing that that bothered me is that there's a couple of paintings in the film that they they show us kind of closely. That Monet is, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's put it this way, Monet as far as I know, never used primary colors like that. And oh. I know the painting they're referring to, it's actually a, a painting of uh, the Houses of Parliament in London with the sunrise coming over the Thames. And it's much more atmospheric and much calmer, much less um, blatant, garish even. Yeah. Um, but for most people who don't know the painting they're referencing, it's not even a direct copy or anything. I don't think anybody would have noticed or cared. Um, other paintings that, that show up in there too. There's a, there's a, like the Rene Magritte painting. That's, you know, it's not the real painting, but that's what it looks like. So that yeah. part's fine. But, um, the Monet in question is like, really? <laughs> it's more like a Monet is more is what it is. Ouch. Um, but, but yeah, but it's like, you know, folding that thing up, you know, the way he did for yeah. one thing, it wouldn't have done that. Like the, the stretchers would not have broken nice and neatly like that and fit yeah. into the briefcase. Um, so yeah, whatever. That's fine. It's fine. I, I do have to say there are there is one story element in both movies that really makes you stop, and it took me out of the movie a little bit because it makes you stop and think, my God, this guy Thomas Crown is a bastard. Yeah. And there is both both in both movies he does something to intentionally make uh, the you know Rene Russo slash Faye Dunaway jealous in that he's seen with another woman. And his explanation yep. in, is, I needed you to know that you're actually feeling something. I needed well, you to know that you, I needed you to be jealous, and basically to prove that this isn't just about the painting. That's really a nasty thing to do to somebody. Well, here's the thing. The first film, he it felt more like that. And there was a girlfriend in the first film who's really a throwaway. Mm-hmm. Um, we see her face. She then gets up and we see her from behind in her panties. Teehee. And I mean, she she's barely there. And yeah, I, I she's out there with him in the, when he's uh, in the glider. 
Yeah, and it's just like, eh, you know, whatever. She's 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 almost not there at all. And there's also the in the first film they say that he's divorced, and I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't believe he was married. Um, in the second film, we there's no mention of that. There is another woman, but she turns out she plays another role. He does say, yes, I knew they were taking photos of her. But at no point in the photos is he shown doing anything more than being close to her or kissing her on the forehead. There's no scenes of him having sex with her because he doesn't. But he does say, I needed to know. How else would I know if it was just the painting or not? And yeah. how else would he know? But talk, Yeah, talk about her as a throwaway character. She's not even a throwaway. She's a device. She's a plot device. Oh, she doesn't that, talk. She doesn't have any lines. Well, of no. course, I believe that's because the actress who played her doesn't speak English. But... Uh, <laughs> She had no lines. She's no. just, she's just, hello, hello, I'm a plot device. You can't fire me. I'm French. <laughs> you have a point. What point? How should I know? My head hurts. <laughs> Thank you, kids in the hall. Uh, yeah, no, it, that's fine. I don't, I don't again, mind because she actually does have, like, there's a purpose for her being there mm-hmm. as opposed to, I'm the girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. No, she actually has a job. She does yes. stuff. Yeah. Or we're um, told she does. We never see it, but. Going back to the first film, I love the Batman gas. No, <laughs> oh. in the bank. Yes. It's just like these bright, it was bright red. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually had an experience with tear gas once, Ooh. and it was in Boston. Wow, how and did this happen? Yeah, we, I was in downtown Crossing. It was it was winter. It was very cold. We were coming up from um, uh, the Washington nah, downtown Crossing, and we were at the bottom, looking up towards. Uh, the park up towards mm-hmm. the common park street station. And I was holding my niece mm-hmm. who was then like a year old, two years old, not even two, must've been like a year old. And my sister was with me. And suddenly at the top end of the street, somebody sets down a shopping bag with a tear gas container going Ooh. for no reason at all. Oh. And we didn't get that much of it, but we were like, I don't know what that is. And I, I held my, my niece to my chest. So she wasn't breathing any of it. And as we just as we were starting to get a whiff of it, we managed to get inside a record store that was there. Um, and I got to tell you, tear gas sucks. Yeah, especially <laughs> the mess. older stuff. That was vicious, vicious stuff. It's, yeah. It was especially if it was police issue. A military issue can actually do permanent damage. But it did not look like the Wicked Witch of the West was about to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, those were, they, they, there's some that suggest it's tear gas and some of it I think was just a smoke bomb. It was just a yeah. dif- you know, distraction and such. But man, yeah. what does it do to the marble? Oh, <laughs> the marble. <laughs> I was like, really? Gas stains marble? Okay. <laughs> Why not? Hey, hmm? how about them Swiss bank accounts? Because that used to be a thing. Oh, yeah. well, it still sort of is, except now people just use the Cayman Islands or uh, right. got other places. Yeah, the whole numbered account. For those it's, who don't know, because it's hmm. never like explicit because it was a known device, it used to be, and I don't know if this is still true or not, but it used to be that uh, the Swiss banks were such that we, as long as you have the proper identification, we don't care who you are. Oh, not even the ID, as long as no, you know the number. Oh, that's right. Because so, the whole point was you had the number to the account. I don't know if there was a, a, an explicit password or anything or not, but as, as long as you knew the correct handshake, mm. you can put whatever you want in there. We're not going to look. We're not going to report to anybody. Nope. And uh, so they, you, they would not. They would resist any subpoenas. They, I think uh, Switzerland does have an extradition treaty with the U.S., but the banks are pretty much immune, or at least they used to be. I think they, they've changed. It's If you have to jump through some serious... 
uh, hoops, but it's possible, I think, to get the owners of some of the boxes. The interesting part is that this was one of the few, if you want to call it that, weak points in the Steve McQueen version's plan, because they make a point of the fact it's like, okay, it's all small bills, meaning it was pretty much 20s and below, which Mm -hmm. is not a small amount of paper. No, that's a lot. I mean, we saw it's like five or six laundry bags full of paper. Yeah, and so one of the reasons that she's able to pick up on this is she goes, wait a minute, so of these guys... Who's been, who, where is he likely to go? He's likely to go to Switzerland. Yeah. Who of these people has been to Switzerland a number of times in the last few months? Oh, look. Yeah. And yep. that would, and that's great because it makes perfect sense. Maybe this is why the FBI were pissed. Cause we would have thought of that. <laughs> we totally, we totally would have thought of that. Could be, could um, be. But uh, it, it just also feeds into her being smart, which I liked. So mm-hmm. I that whole Swiss bank thing. Um, now, of course, with the painting, you know, one of the things this is one of the parts where uh, Mikey, the character played by um, uh, Dennis Leary, Dennis Leary is a little bit less broad minded. He's like, well, as soon as he sells the painting, we have him. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's not. He's not. Gonna yeah. And then it. she tells him because she, you know, she's been involved in more than he's not going to sell it. People who steal these things don't sell them. They and this is tr- a lit. Well, I don't know if it's true, but this is the story you hear is that the, these people sell it to some chic or some rich guy, and they hide it in a vault, and they just go in and look at it every so often. No one knows they have it. Yeah, I actually read a lot about art theft and yeah. art forgery, and pretty much the whole Dr. No uh, secret hideout painting for the, you know, shopping for the wealthy thing is pretty much never true. Uh. It's Sadly, the paintings are often used for brokering drug deals and stuff like that. Mm. Um, like, they, for example, they say that the paintings from the Isabella Stewart Gardener are not only have they not been well cared for, but they probably, even if still exist at all, are in such state that they're not even repairable. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That's... I did like some of the things that were similar in both, like the little the golf game thing. Because mm-hmm. and... it helps illustrate, like, I can do whatever I want. I ha- Nothing's challenging me. It's like, yeah. I'm... It also Go shows ahead. how little value money has to him. Yeah. He's like betting $100,000 on whether he can hit out of a sand trap. I did like the line a little bit better in the in the Pierce Brosnan one. It's a beautiful Saturday morning. What the hell else have we got to do? Tommy, that's $100,000 in a goddamn golf swing. <laughs> um, hey, remember Woolworths? <laughs> oh, God. I love yes. the fact that not only is it Woolworths, but it's one with a lunch counter. Because yep. that's something you used to do. Uh, Woolworths, five and dime. Yep, you went in there for a... Maybe you get yourself a phosphate, read the latest serialized <laughs> Fitzgerald and Collier's. I saw it on a mimeograph. Um, <laughs> on my way to an ether frolic. <laughs> I, want, I want to say, too, that one thing that the first film did that I don't think the second one did really at all, and that the first film, I think, influenced a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the cop shows of the late 60s, early 70s, even through the 70s, and Columbo's one of the prime examples, stylistically feel like, oh, yeah, we saw that movie. We liked that movie a lot. And I don't mean it in a bad way. No, no, it's a good way because it's all about outsmarting. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, there's, it's not like chase scenes. It's not car chases. It's not gunfights. It's trying to outthink the opponent. And it's also... It, I, I definitely see the thing with Columbo because in all the Columbo episodes, you know who done it, right? And you know how they done it, and you usually know why they done it. And the whole thing is trying to figure out how Columbo's going to figure it out. It's the same. It's, it's very similar. No, I could definitely yep. see that. However, I do want to start bringing this to bringing this to a wrap up. 
Uh, so. Do you have something better to do? <laughs> yes, I'm going to go waste. I'm going to go throw away money on golf games, trying to hit balls out of <laughs> sand traps. Um, Max. <laughs> yes. Two things. One, it's winter. Yeah. Yeah. And two, you don't golf. Excuse me. Addressing both points. When I was in Minnesota, I played snow golf. Yes, were I'm you sorry? Big? Yes, you go to a golf course covered in snow and you use tennis balls with the golf clubs because they're visible and they go really far. Are you serious? I'm serious. I played snow golf. Yeah, okay. it was it was great because you didn't have to pay for it because all the clubs were closed. You know, they didn't care if you walked around on the snow. You weren't damaging the turf. I see. So they didn't, in fact, know you were playing snow golf. Not as such. Ah, so you were <laughs> illegally playing snow golf. Quasi-legally playing snow golf. I mean, people saw us. It wasn't like we broke in in the middle of night. They just didn't care. Hello, Minnesota golf courses. <laughs> oh, have I got news for you. <laughs> <laughs> Great, you're going to narc on me for 25K like Irwin's wife? <laughs> oh, you never take me anywhere. The Roundup. So, looking at these two movies, uh, let, let's just very quickly say, what. how do we think they worked? I think these are both really good movies. They're just very different. They take the same story, the same characters. They each handle them in a different and unusual way, and I think they both work. I think they both work. I will say that the first film is slower. Mm-hmm. That's true. It is. It is more atmospheric's not the right word, but it is more about tone mm. than it is about the story itself. Yeah, um, no, it's I think not that's as true. The plot isn't as cru- as crucial. No, but that's a sign of the times. Mm-hmm. That is not a a you know shortcoming of the film it's that's how things were and that's the kind of film that was being made then it is a perfectly good steve mcqueen vehicle he's perfectly fine in it uh faye dunaway's great in it Mm -hmm. i actually there there was no there was nobody that stood out as being bad in the film it has a it has a almost a very slight um cinema verite feeling to it like when you're dealing with parking lots and people's houses and stuff it feels very much like we're going to shoot this the way it is right now we're not putting up extra lights or anything it felt very on the spot Hmm. Um, and the nice part too is that we can sit there and go I know where that is I know where that is I know where that is (laughs) yes that is cool Um, the second film feels a lot more like a film of its time and so it's a little bit more faster paced you pointed out that the director did a lot of action films so that makes sense there was also this interesting little heist film renaissance in the late 90s early 2000s where and another film we might talk about later on Ocean's Eleven oh yeah um Italian Job, mm-hmm. both remakes, but uh, there was a lot of like suddenly there was a bunch of heist films. There was the score. There was um, there was one called the heist. the heist. Yeah, one with um, De Niro and one with uh, Gene Hackman, both of which are very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the De Niro film a lot. Have you seen the De Niro film? Which one? He uh... he is the score. Oh no, I have not. I actually never saw either oh. of the score. Yeah, the mm. score is uh, Robert De Niro and Ed uh, um, Norton. Norton, Ed Norton. Okay. And they're oh, ripping okay. they're Sorry. ripping off a um, something from the customs house in I think it's Montreal, okay. but it's uh, it's also very brainy, um, really good performances. Uh, I like the film quite a bit. But yeah, there was this whole like suddenly everyone was doing heist films, and this is part of that. It's very uh, I don't clear think it started it. Of the two, you clearly prefer the nineteen ninety nine prefer the nineteen ninety nine version. 
Yeah, I do. But here's one of the reasons I saw it first, and uh, that always that always influences. I yeah, can't it help does. But... No, you can't. You know, you can't keep. Uh, I actually like I like them both. I like the first one, the '68 one, a little bit better because it was so it was new. It was very stylized. I think it's elegant. Mm-hmm. I think it's restrained. I think it's a lot more subtle. Uh, again, the characters aren't as as nice, and the heists are nowhere near as much fun. I still like the whole Magritte outfit thing in the second heist in the second movie. Yes, that's a lot of fun. Also, I I have to say I like the ending of the first one better. It fits more. The second one is a bit too happy ever after. Again, I like that before because I like happy endings, but I think it worked. It, the first one it worked a little bit better. So while I like both, I like I think I'd give it give the props to the first one. Yeah, and of course you know you wouldn't have the second one without the first one. Sure, you know because that's just the way it is. But it's a surprisingly good remake in that it doesn't poop all over the first film sometimes when they when they remake films they're like yeah. well that was a piece of garbage i can do better than that and yeah. then the answer is well n- no you can't yeah this this is clearly there are a number of very loving tributes right down to they use the song windmills of your mind several times in it yeah and thankfully they don't have that british guy no but they have a cause... nice kind of jazzy version which actually i think worked better yeah um so both worth seeing. I would say that yep. if you're going to go back and watch the original one, do remember that this is a uh, an older film, so that the the what's the word I want the the pacing yeah. is not going to be the same. Yeah, it is definitely um, a slower paced movie, but it's worth seeing. And hey, you know, if you want to comment to us about which one you like better, you can do so through hmm. our email address, which is us at maxmikemovies.com. Right, or you, you can follow find us on the Twitter at Port. Max Mike movies, or you can or find the, it on Facebook. The Facebook, yep. Which is where? Also, Max Mike movies. Who'd have thunk but it? If you want to see it, or see, <laughs> if you want to hear all our our past episodes, those are on our website, which is uh, thankfully and dutifully maintained by Max Levine. That yeah. is also maxmikemovies.com. And, and you, you can, can leave fo- comments there. Yep, and you can always listen to us on your favorite, on uh, the Google Podcast app or uh, iTunes. All I mean, those the cool Apple, things. The, sorry, the, these, the Apple Podcast app. Yes. All these neat ways that you can keep in touch with us or otherwise yell at us and just, in general, throw things at us. Yep. So that wraps it up for this one. So, Mike, what are, <laughs> what are, what are, what are we doing tomorrow? Not next week, Mike! I don't know. I forgot to pick a movie. <laughs> Uh, well, you mean it's a mystery. That's so right. We'll it's be, a mystery. We will res- reveal this mystery next week. Or more likely what I'll do is I'll just tack something on when I look at the list after we've finished recording and go, oh, and by the way, next week's movie is this. Because, of course, he- we forgot to tell them this one, too, but yes, that's all right. which, which I'm sure will happen seamlessly. Oh, and by the way, next week's movies are Charade and The Truth About Charlie. Actually, maybe I'll remember to do... Oops, wait, too late. No, no, it's not too late. I can go back and add that in for the previous episode so oh, okay. that they'll know to watch these films. Because I know you all watch these films, don't you? So of course you do. Why don't you go off and watch these films? For Max Mike Movies, this is Max Levine. Oh, no, it isn't. This is Max Levine, and that's... I forgot your name already. (laughs) What am Uh, I doing here? Where's my pants? Where's the fire escape? (laughs) The end. Max Mike Movies is a co-production of... The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench.